So I'm three gigs into this tour, and so far two of them have been sellouts, and the other one was still great. It started out in Newport, Wales. We had a great gig there. And then I went to Brosley, England, which is the birthplace of the Industrial Revolution. Had another great gig. And the next morning, Caroline was nice enough to drive me to Liverpool, where I could fly to the Isle of Man. I got there, had a sold-out gig, and it was just beautiful. Everybody treated me really nice. That's where I'm at right now. Last night, I woke up to the sound of what sounded like somebody being murdered outside my hotel room window. And uh, it kind of startled me, and I jumped up and I looked out the window, and there was some drunk guy standing out in the middle of the street singing Run Around Sue at the top of his lungs. And as you can imagine, it sounded horrible, but I managed to get back to sleep, and it's beautiful to be on the Isle of Man. Hi friends, this is Otis Gibbs and you're listening to Thanks for Giving a Damn. I'm sitting here in a hotel room on the Isle of Man. I'm looking out the window and I can see across Douglas Bay and out into the Irish Sea. And it's as beautiful as you can imagine. This is a personal journal. This is a bit of an experiment. I like to say right up front that I haven't the slightest idea what I'm doing, but I decided to do it anyway. And this show was founded with the idea that there are only two people in art that matter. There's a creative individual and the person experiencing it and everything else is an artificial filter. This is a way for me to share things with you guys without any filters whatsoever. My guest this week is Amy Spies. Amy is a singer and a songwriter, and she lives in East Nashville. You can find out everything you need to know about Amy at amyspies.com. I met Amy eight or nine years ago. It might have been in Indianapolis, I'm not sure, but... We have a lot of mutual friends, and I'd run into her on the road quite often and always enjoyed seeing her and chatting with her. And then uh, she ended up moving to Nashville and lives there in East Nashville a couple, two or three years ago. So I see her at the dog park, and it's just really nice to have her in the neighborhood. It's good to run into her. I caught up with Amy. I went over to her house, and she was moving from one house to another, so she had a lot of stuff stacked around. We had a really nice conversation, and I think you guys are going to enjoy it. Here's Amy Spies. Yeah, I'm from Baltimore, Maryland, actually. Um, that's where I was born, but when I was eight, we moved to Minneapolis. And then we spent five years there and then moved to a little town called Williamsport, Pennsylvania. It's kind of in the north, north central part of the state, which there's nothing there except the Susquehanna River and Little League Baseball World Series. Um, so kind of equal parts all over the place. Um, when I was about three, I guess my grandmother had this piano, and my mom never really played, and my grandmother played, but not very well. And they had it in the house, and, and I, they tell me that I just sort of sat down and started playing, and they tried to put me in lessons. Um, when I was five, I finally got into lessons. Um, but we moved around so much that it's like I'd take lessons with a teacher for a couple of years and then we'd move and I'd have to start over with a new teacher and a new method and then we'd move. So I really had terrible technique. Um, I studied piano until I was about 16 or 17, but I really, I got really good at, you know, kind of BSing my way through the lesson. I never practiced. So I was a great sight reader and, a te- and I had terrible technique. Um, 
But through that, music was kind of the way I saw the world as a kid. So I was like immediately, you know, once you're in fourth grade and you can do band, I chose an instrument. I chose clarinet, um, mostly because I wanted to play drums and my parents wouldn't let me. <laughs> it's not an instrument for a girl. Um, oh, I know. It's that's a just, terrible attitude. I know. My parents are super conservative. Um, but clarinet was cool, and I played that and then tenor saxophone in the band. and So I was really, really into that stuff. And then I got really involved in choir. Um, and really the acting came because um, I wanted to get into choir, and I didn't think I had a good voice. Um, and the choir had this sort of music review. It was in junior high school. And um, I you know, I wasn't really a star singer in junior high school, but I was funny. So I, um, I auditioned for um, Adelaide in Guys and Dolls. And all I had to do was fake a Bronx accent and sing nasally, and I could do that. I was just always like the class clown. So um, I got the part because I could act. Um, and so from that, I sort of realized, I remember when I did that, how the, what the response was. And I was, I don't know, 13, 14. But it was like that moment where you, you know who you are for the first time. And the light bulb went off. And uh, I mean, it, was, it, it's, it was huge. And, and I kind of thought, this is what I want. And I didn't really know what this was. I just knew that it involved singing and it involved performing. Um, and at the time, since I wasn't, I didn't feel like I had a good voice, I figured I would just take the performing but take the singing out of it. And so I started acting a lot. And then I started getting roles in choir because of that. And so I had teachers who heard something and said, I think there's something more in there. Let's give you after school free voice lessons, which led to let's get you connected with a, you know, a voice teacher from the local college, which led me to going to a school for the arts and studying classical music and opera which just completely changed my like what I thought my voice was. And then I became a really serious like studier of the voice. So it kind of I, I wouldn't have found one without the other. I went to a, a it was a program called Governor School for the Arts, which I don't think they exist anymore, but they were these summer programs um, in different states. You, it was a big competition to get in and like in my state, I don't know, it's like a thousand singers auditioned and they took seven. So it was a it was a huge deal, a big honor. And most of the kids in my program were from like the Philadelphia High School of the Performing Arts, things like that. And I went to just a regional high school. So I was like, I don't know why I'm here. I'm not sure how I got here. Um, and out of that, I had my teacher was from um, the Cincinnati Conservatory of Music. And she really encouraged me to to go on to a career in classical music and opera. And that was the summer before my senior year. And so my senior year of high school, I was, I was doing really well, and I wanted to be a writer. Um, that's all I knew is I wanted to sing, be on stage, and be a writer. So I was auditioning for all sorts of schools, um, like Juilliard and Eastman Conservatory Music. And then I was also applying to the best colleges that I could apply to. Um, and just with a lot of student loans. Um, um, so, and I wanted to go to a small, I wanted to go to a small liberal arts college in New England because I liked the picture of that. So I got into a few of those and I got into Eastman Conservatory. And I had like that crossroads where I'm going to go to Eastman and pretty much the road ahead of me is a classical career in voice or a teacher. 
or I'm going to go to Amherst College, and I have no idea what's ahead of me. And I ended up choosing Amherst College because I liked the vibe of it. It just felt like it suited me more. And that's kind of where I went back into theater. But I went back into theater by a sort of um, the study of it as a philosophy, really. Um, it was a great college to go to, and I studied English literature. And then I started out as a music major and bailed on theory because I hated it. And uh, went and took classes in theater and like the like the philosophy of performance and got you know got kind of I mean it's you're you know you're a kid and you're you think that the coolest thing in the world is to stay up all night long and drink beer and eat chicken wings and talk about, you know, Artaud and Descartes and think that you're smarter than you are. And I sort of enjoyed that whole mental masturbation going on. <laughs> um, and then from there, um, I didn't really know what to do with my life. And I was, I did, I was graduating really well. And I ended up, um, I had a bunch of professors who, I, I was going to go on for a PhD in something. Um, and I had some professors say, no, you just need to go to New York. We don't know what you should do, but you should perform. You know, Because I was a singer in college and I was doing all that, but I didn't write my own music yet. Um, so I really wasn't sure, like, do I want to act? I'm not really sure. Do I want to sing? I, I don't really dance. I don't want to do a musical theater thing. And just I had professors who said, just spend five years in New York and you'll find it. And so somebody introduced me to somebody from the National Shakespeare Conservatory and they accepted me, and I did a two-year acting program there. That led me to get a job with the National Shakespeare Company. And so, yeah, it's a long-winding story no, to it. There's never a straight line to anything, <laughs> it doesn't seem like. For me, it's always the straight. The only common, uh, commonality in any of my stories is that at every crossroads, there was an angel who shows up who says, why don't you go this way, and then opens a door and leads me to the right place. And it's always somebody else who came along and pushed me in that Yeah, you know what? I, I way prefer the company of musicians. Just, I love, I love acting. But, and I, and I loved studying the characters. But so much of your time as an actor, especially in the pursuit of a life as a professional actor in New York City, which means you've got three jobs and you're taking any gig you could possibly get, not like the life of somebody who has an agent and can pick and choose their projects, but that sort of beginning part, there's so much conversation that borders on narcissism that gets really uncomfortable to be around. And I felt like my own journey as a human being on this planet just started to want to take a shower. It was like I wouldn't get a part because I wasn't a size three, you know. And then I would bang my head against the wall like, well, am I a good actress or do I just need to drop 20 pounds? And already I thought of myself as like a fairly thin person. I didn't want to be, you know, I didn't want to think about it that much. I didn't want to think about what I looked like that much. Um, but I loved the craft of it and I loved just getting inside – you know, and had I, had I been, and it's, you know, had I been a different character type, had I already come into it, like, at 170 pounds, I would have been a character actress, and then I could have just not cared about it. Um, but kind of being in between that type, I was always in between the girl next door and the lead girl. Um, and the lead girl was always a model. And so I was always up against some model who didn't go to acting school. And I was like, I went to the National Shakespeare Conservatory. And you know, so that thing really 
drove me crazy. And then the, the business talk amongst actors has a lot to do with sort of an external thing that I just kind of felt like I didn't want to spend my life talking about. Whereas I felt like once I started playing music of my own, once I started writing and hanging out with songwriters and other musicians, there's still shop talk, but I don't know, the shop talk is like gear, which is fun, <laughs> you know, like what, what pickup are you using in your Jaguar? You know, what, you know, did you take out the humbuckers? And, you know, I just love that stuff. Um, and there was just a much, you know, when you're talking, you know, you can think of tone as like an external thing or like even what you wear or your, your thing, your branding. But I always felt like I, I was hanging around with roots musicians and, Nobody's, nobody was trying to be the next Katy Perry, so nobody was playing the pop game. So it really wasn't about all these external. Less of a fashion show. It's not a fashion show. It wasn't a, like who's cooler than who. It was really like who's more authentic and do, you, and, and do I believe it? And, and who's got the tone that you want and who's, you know, that. And I love that chase. Um, so it was pretty easy when I kind of came to another crossroads and had to choose just because of time, you know, I was touring as a musician and then not being able to make it to the audition for the commercial. Um, I just decided what company do I want to keep the rest of my life? Musicians. Like when I first became aware of you, it was on one of your earlier tours, you stopped in our neighborhood in Indianapolis and played a coffee shop. It was my favorite coffee shop there and, uh, called Kath. And I think you even slept on my friend Nora's couch. Mm -hmm. Do you have memories of that? I, I clearly remember that tour. That was the first tour I ever did. Uh, a guy named Fred Gillen Jr., who is from, I think, around Ithaca, New York. I met him in Albany. And he, I called him one day, and I, I knew he toured, and I, I, wanted, I was interested in touring. Was living in New York City, and I said, "Hey, um, can you just can I pick your brain? Tell me how to tour." And he said, "Well, I'm doing this tour in October. You want to just come along? I'll split the money with you if you just share the driving." And I was like, "Who does that?" It's like the kindest thing anybody's ever done. And I didn't have to do any of the booking. I just shared his show. And, um, and one of the first gigs, like first gig was Cincinnati, and the second gig was Indy. And so we meet Nora, who's the coolest woman in the world. And she is. And she's still a friend of mine. We still keep in touch. And um, yeah, it's just so funny how people, this is like 10 years ago, you know, my first show ever outside of anywhere I'd ever been, you know, is it, and then I sleep on this woman's floor and she's got the coolest connect collection of Pez dispensers, <laughs> you know, and, and, and then I remember meeting you. I remember meeting like anybody who was anybody in the indie music scene because she brought everybody out and we hung out afterwards and I just... I'd never experienced anything like that. Yeah. Nora, Nora's a great, uh, she's great at introducing people and getting them together. She's so, a connector. Yeah. Yeah. Definitely. And she listens to this. So she's going to. Hi, like, Nora. She me. named one of her cats after me. Really? Yeah. Actually, it was me and my drummer at the time, Jagoda. And I was touring my third time through. I toured with a guy named Felix McTeague. And so the cat was, I think, Felix Jagoda Spies. Yeah. <laughs> so one of the first shows I ever did, um, I had an agent who was a college booking agent, and he's a little sketchy. He represented um, me, um, the guy who pounds nails into his nose, who works with the Jim Rose Circus, <laughs> and 
Um, this woman, Rhonda Shearer, who was basically an ex-Playboy model who used to host a USA Network show that was called Up All Night, and she would perk her breasts up and go, Rhonda, up all night. And then one of the lone gunmen from the X-Files. There were three of them. This guy represented just one of them on the lecture circuit. So he booked me a show to open for the Beach Boys. And I brought a friend of mine to sing harmony, and we hired a band because we were told it was this big deal. And it was in Haver de Grace, Maryland. And so, um, and this is literally my first show outside of New York City. And so my parents got very excited, and, and my friend who was singing harmony got very excited. Her parents got excited. So my between her family and my family, they bought 50 tickets. They sold out the bed and breakfast around Haver de Grace. I think they spent like thousands of dollars, these people, to go down to see us open for the Beach Boys. And we'd hired a band, and we drove down, and we got there, and we got to where the entrance for the artists were and the manager who was standing there didn't have our names and we said no we're opening for the beach boys and he said well who's your contact and i said the name of the agent and then he shook his head and laughed and he said um he's the driver for the beach boys to go pick them up at the airport he's like the buddy of the promoter from high school he doesn't really have anything to do with booking the show but he let us in because he sort of felt bad for us and we sat under a tree. We couldn't find this guy, Roger, the agent, to kill him. Um, <laughs> and so we sat under a tree trying not to cry as we watched the two opening acts open for the Beach Boys. One of them was a steel drum band that played Take the A-Train. And the second opener was a, a ventriloquist who got everybody to do the hokey pokey. <laughs> and we never did play the gig. Yeah. Oh. <laughs> yeah that was my introduction to the music business but it was a really good introduction because i did finally see this guy and my father um who was an imposing guy back then came up because the guy finally came in as the beach boys arrived and we stood there waiting for him to get out of his limo that he was driving and he starts the but 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 and i was like oh no you're getting into my dad's car and we're driving to an atm machine and you're paying me the guarantee out of your pocket and he did Wow. And then I realized then I realized from then on contracts <laughs> deposits. Good for you. <laughs> so that was a really good badass moment in my life. <laughs> I you know, it came about randomly again. I was in um I've been applying to South by Southwest for years and didn't get a showcase for years and my friend Troy Campbell was putting together kind of an alternate showcase at Threadgills one afternoon and asked me if I wanted to come down and play, and and I said sure, and I went down and I played, and um, I think Gurf Morlix was playing right before me, and so Catherine DePaul, Judy Collins' manager, um, was in town to hear Gurf, and also um, she was kind of scouting out for a record label that Judy had just started, so she just happened to hear me, and then I happened to be at the Paste magazine party later that night, and Catherine was there, and she didn't introduce herself to me, you know, but she just... Uh, I remember she bought me a tequila shot and asked me if I had a demo and I gave her the demo and then a couple months later they called me and asked me if they could put the demo out as is that it was Judy Collins label and Judy loved the record and could she you know could she work with me and um, I met Judy um, they flew me out to Minneapolis to do an opening gig for her at a theater and that's when I met her it was backstage right before I went on stage to open for her and I was terrified um, but she's just been she's been amazing, and I've I ha, she's 
become a friend as much as somebody like that can be a friend, you know. Um, it, it's got to be hard to be an icon in the world. And I've certainly been around her, and she's really warm. And and, um, and I don't even mean this just because, you know, I should say this, but it's she really is has, has become such a um, an angel to me but also a friend and has given me tons of advice from, you know, music choices to how to have longevity to, like, what to wear on stage, you know. And my favorite uh, Judy story was um, – when I went, um, she kind of summoned me to her dressing room, which is sort of off limits. And she has, it's a lot of white satin and a lot of pillows. Um, <laughs> I'm not sure what goes on in there, <laughs> but you know, it's very different than my dressing room. And, um, I went in there and it was my birthday. I was touring with her two years ago for about a month and went into her room and she had a present for me. Um, and she sang, She wanted to sing to me, so she sang me Happy Birthday. And it wasn't just like a joke. She actually sang me the whole song. And if you, it's just to sit as close as you and I are with that voice singing Happy Birthday at full volume, I almost cried. And then right when I was done, uh, right when she was done, she asked me, you know, if there was anything I wanted in life um, for my career. And so I talked a little bit to her. And then she said, well, is there anything else in life that, that you would like? And I said, and it was kind of flippant, but I was going through a little bit of a breakup. And I said, yeah, a, a good man who, um, who loves me and doesn't love another woman at the same time. <laughs> and she goes, she said, oh, honey, I had to be 48 before I learned that lesson. <laughs> and then she then she dismissed me and <laughs> I left the room. That was like my favorite Judy Collins moment. Just sort of fixing her hair. Oh, darling. Yes, we all have to learn that lesson. Now leave. <laughs> Yeah, my fa I have a, a million. I'll just choose like my favorite. I love Ian Hunter. I know you you've met him too because you yeah, toured with him. He's a beautiful guy. Isn't he just like the most? I mean, I completely expected. I expected the maybe the typical or, or the cliched, you know, aging rock star, and that I've never seen anybody who's. I mean, his songwriting is extraordinary, and. Um, his musicianship was just like unbelievable. I loved his shows. I would just watch how he navigated his shows and I loved his band. And then I sort of expected, oh, he's probably a lecherous, you know, old dude who <laughs> did a lot of blow backstage and has models. No, and his wife, Trudy, is there and she's super lovely and they're so in love and just, I mean, so not what I had expected. Yeah. Um, he's just, an inspirational guy. He Just the day-to-day, -day, mm -hmm. him enjoying what he does and not really taking any shit yeah. Along the way. No, he's super strict about, you know, what he expects. He knows what he's he knows what he's doing. He knows what he wants. He knows what he wants from a sound person. Um and no, he stand and but he stands up for you as an opening act. That's the other thing is he really stood up for me in a couple couple instances and he really tried, you know, wanted to take care of me. Um but just musicianship wise, I mean, he's so relevant. Um I just I love his music. But yeah, he, I mean it was great because I got to tour with him and Steve Holly, his drummer, who has great stories about working with the band. Um, but there was the um, there was the Edinburgh. We had a tour and we had a day off, and and Ian decided we all had to take the haunted Edinburgh tour together. <laughs> That's about the best. You can't get much better than like doing a haunted <laughs> haunted walking tour through Edinburgh in a creepy, creepy night with Ian Hunter. 
you know, it's like so cool. <laughs> and he taught me, he wanted me to come up on stage at the end of the show. I don't know if he does this with you, but just saying all the young dudes. Yeah. And we did a show in Wales where Fally, the keyboard player, um, came and I ended up talking to him for a while and he showed me the keyboard part. So Ian would always have me get on and play the keyboard part to all the young dudes and sing along. And I was just like, really, there's nothing better oh, yeah. in my life than that moment. He came up to me and asked me uh, after the second show, he's like, Otis, I, I don't want to impose on you. And he was dead serious. But um, if you would like to... You know, you're welcome to come up and sing all the young dudes with us, but I don't want you to think you have to. And I'm just like, what are you talking about? Of course I'm going to come up. But he really, mm -hmm. he didn't want to pressure me into it mm -hmm. as if I could be pressured. You know? Yeah. I have this moment where he's doing a sound check on stage and he's kind of humming along this thing while they're sound checking and he's yelling at, does anybody have a recording device? Does anybody have a recording device? And I had my laptop. And, and my little microphone. I said, yeah. And so he said, Amy, get this down with Leah. And I, I got it down. And, and he said, do something with that if you want to. And I was like, co-write with Ian Hunter, you know. <laughs> Too much pressure. I couldn't get it done. But, and he ended up, it, it became one of the songs on his second to last album. Um, and I, have, I still have that original tape of him working through the melody of that song. Well, if you move to Nashville from Hoboken, Jersey City, East Village of Brooklyn, pretty much your only choice, I would think, is East Nashville. I hate to, I don't mean to say anything negative about the rest of Nashville, but I wasn't finding my people anyplace else. And I came over here and I saw, I saw rainbow flags and piercings and tattoos, and I thought, these are my people. Um, I had been coming here for a couple years to do some writing with some writers that I'd met. Um, John Vesner was an early supporter of mine, and he was always inviting me here to do bluebird rounds and to do some writing with him. And um, and I was um, and I'd never thought of moving here. I never because I didn't really know that there was much here except for Music Row. Um, I knew some people that lived here and did. I knew Amelia White and that she lived here. Um, and that there was some scene going on that was sort of, you know, Todd Snyder. But I didn't, I was, didn't feel connected to anybody. Um, and I started working with um, David Macias at 30 Tigers. And um, I switched management and switched labels to them. And so I was doing a lot of traveling back and forth until I realized this is ridiculous. And at the same time, I was going through like a personal shift. I had gotten a divorce about six months beforehand. Um, and pretty much didn't have any ties to the New York area anymore and and was looking to really make a huge, you know, just a change. And New York is expensive, especially, you know, I'd been living there um, with somebody else. But then when I left my marriage, I was trying to make it work on my own and living in a tiny little studio apartment in Jersey City, New Jersey for $1,600 a month with sky high, you know, in car insurance. And I couldn't figure it out. And working with David really shifted things because he really said, you know, you should come down here and, you know, with his network, he was like, we'll help you find a place that'll be cheaper. And, and so I got down here and realized how many people I knew um, and looked around this neighborhood and thought, ah, oh, this is where I want to live. So like I left New York city, I always felt like I was still in that. Maybe it'll work out for me someday. Maybe I can find, you know, you're forever in an emerging place in your head, at least financially speaking. And then I moved here and I went, oh, wait a second. I actually, 
I actually can afford to live in a house and I can buy, I can go out to a, you know, to restaurants or buy boots once in a while, you know. In a nice neighborhood with people that you like around you. Exactly. And it's still got the funky grit of an urban environment, but it's, I feel like I have a life now. I felt like I was in search and in pursuit of a life living in New York. You're always exhausted. Um, and there's so much stimulus and it's a beautiful thing um, when you're in your 20s, but as you sort of round the corner into your 40s, you just, I personally, I needed a little bit of slowness um, to hear, to hear the voices in my head a little clearer, you know? Um, so I moved down here and, and I realized this is where, uh, and I couldn't have moved here any sooner, I think. It was the right time for me to get here. Maybe you can talk about your Monday night uh, songwriters gathering that you do at your house. Sometimes. Yeah, that you have to come to sometime. <laughs> no, you don't have to. Nobody has it. <laughs> I get it. Um, I used to, when I was in New York, I um, once in a while I would go to Jack Hardy's songwriter exchange. And Jack Hardy was this total curmudgeon, wonderful songwriter from the fast folk era in the 60s and 70s in New York City. And for 35 years, he held a Monday night gathering of songwriters of any level. Um, anybody was invited as long as you showed up and you brought a new song, um, not road tested. And he made a big pile of pasta. You brought wine. You had to use his guitar. You could not put it into an open tuning. <laughs> <laughs> you couldn't use a partial capo. And, uh, and you passed the guitar around and you played songs. The first time I went, Suzanne Vega was sitting right next to me. Uh, which was terrifying, but also kind of cool because on my other side was like this guy who's a plumber by day and just loves to write songs. And everybody was an equal walking in the door. And it was a great workshop. And Jack was really a great, great, great person that way. Um, and I got to know him a little bit more by playing Kerrville Folk Festival. And I used to hang out at the camp that he hung out at. And um, and then he passed away a couple years ago, and but maybe three years ago. Um, and a bunch of us were sitting at Kerrville talking, but we did a tribute to him. We were talking about how much he'd be missed. And I, I, somebody asked if, if a similar thing was happening in Nashville. And I said no. And Buddy Monlock was there. And he said, I don't think anything like that's going around. There's picking parties, but there's not necessarily like a place you can work out a new song. And I just, I was still trying to find my way here. It was, I still felt very new here. I didn't know many people. And I said, well, I'll do it at my house if people will show up. And um, so the next, I got home from Kerrville, and that Monday, some people who were traveling back from Kerrville showed up, and and then the next week, some more people came, and so we've been doing it every single Monday night, um, any Monday that I'm not on the road, and some Mondays when I am on the road, my friends Doug and Talisha Williams hosted at their house, so I think we've only missed like three or four in the past three years. Okay. You've yeah. had some interesting names show up to some of these also, huh? Yeah, yeah. I mean, like Mary Gaucher. Or... Mm -hmm. Mary's come a bunch of times. She's worked out some new songs. In fact, I had a song that was half finished that after she heard it, she uh, she said, "Hey, I'd love to get in on that song because I heard some of my story in that song, and that became the song on my record, Left Me Hanging." Um, Steve Seskin, who's a great songwriter who comes through town, and John Vesner has shown up. Buddy Monlock comes. Some great, great songwriters, um, and also um, people who've written their first song will show up and play their first song here. So. It's a, it's a no schmooze zone. That's the only rule is no schmooze and everybody's equal. That's a good rule. Yeah. <laughs> I appreciate you inviting me over here to your living room. Are we in the living room here? No, this is the conservatory. Okay. Maybe um, before, I, before I say bye, maybe we should <laughs> talk about the state your life is in at the moment. 
Oh, all of the boxes? <laughs> yeah, this place is a mess right now. I'm moving in two two weeks. I'm moving in two weeks, and I have to go to two festivals this weekend and, and then move quickly and then leave for a European tour. So it's a little chaotic, and uh, my dog is slightly freaking out. But, yeah, welcome to my conservatory. Welcome to the music life. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> Well, I appreciate you inviting me over here and uh, being part of this. Thanks for having me. I'd like to thank everybody for listening in, and I'd like to thank Amy for inviting me over to her house and having this conversation. You can find out everything you need to know about Amy at amyspeace.com. If you'd like to help support this show, just go to otisgibbs.com and you can pick up a CD, a t-shirt, you can download any record I've ever made, you can buy one of my photographic prints, you can buy one of Amy's records, you can buy one of Amy's children's books, but anything that you buy, we'll mail from our living room to yours and we'll even put in a little thank you note. If you'd like to help out but you're a little short on cash, just go to iTunes and leave us a five-star review, leave a comment. Subscribe while you're there and you'll get a brand new episode free every Wednesday. But if you enjoy this show, or you enjoy my music, or you enjoy Amy's music, please take the time to tell a friend and help us spread the word. And if you'd like to send us a message, we'd love to hear from you. Just send it to info at otisgibbs.com. I'm Otis Gibbs. Thanks for giving a damn.